Well, if you want to follow along this morning, we're in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. We're taking four weeks on one verse, and you think, that's a long time (laughs) to spend on one verse. But some verses in the Bible are so loaded and so packed with truth that to just read through it at uh, one sitting really doesn't do it justice. When I first started off into ministry, one of the opportunities I had was to go to a rescue mission. I don't know if any of you ever have gone to the soup line or rescue missions and, and had that opportunity. And I thought, well, if I, if I go here, I have the opportunity to help people whose lives are really down and out. Of course, you know that people have come upon difficult times, a lot of times alcohol, drug abuse, families have fallen apart, not having jobs. So I thought I can encourage them by the promises of God's Word. And I remember one of the first guys I talked to, he knew more Bible than I knew. And I was studying for the ministry. I, I had, to, as a requirement, memorize verses every week. And I had memorized verses all my life growing up in a, in a church and in a Christian home. And I, I knew a lot of Bible. This guy knew more Bible than I knew. And it wasn't a unique experience. It seemed like everywhere I would turn, I would find someone else who could just quote verse after verse after verse of truth. And I thought, how does that happen when there's a, a seeming disconnect from what you know, what you've memorized, what you've learned, and how it's played out in your life? And to be honest with you, I've seen the same thing happen, go all the way through college and through seminary and graduate school alongside other men and women who knew their Bible. They, they could tell you chapter content of the entire Bible. They could quote large sections. I, I even remember one man who claimed he had memorized the entire Bible. But what puzzled me, the more I talked to him, is I wondered, is he really a Christian? Has, has any of it affected change? Because I don't get the sense that what he says he knows has ever come to reality in his life. And I thought, how can that happen? How can that be? We started off this morning talking about observing people who will say certain things, but they don't practice what they preach. We would call them hypocrites. That's what Jesus called them. Of course, that was a little bit of a put, a put down to these religious leaders who everybody in that day had great respect for their knowledge and their spirituality. But Jesus said they're hypocrites because there is no connection between what they know and what they do. Something's missing in the process. And the story of Ezra, he is one of three men, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra, all in this time period of Israel going from captivity in Babylon and uh, and Syria and moving back to regain their city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls, Zerubbabel reestablishing temple worship. But Ezra had been given the unique responsibility to help the people get their hearts 
back where they needed to be. And that is really what this message is about, this series of messages is about, is how Ezra prepared his heart. And you think, of all the things that you do, of all that you are, what does God care about most? Well, it's the heart. It's not visibly what I see when I look at you or you look at me. You see how I'm dressed, whether or not I've combed my hair, uh, how I present myself. That's what you see. That's perception. Reality is what God knows me to be. And the truth is, I could stand up here like a hypocrite, like it means putting the mask on, uh, and play the part and be very convincing. And all along, God know that inside, he is not pleased. It is not right. And so God cares more about your heart than any other part of your life. In Proverbs, it says, your, your heart is like a fountain. Everything you do flows from your heart. And so this is what <clears throat> Ezra had determined to prepare, to prepare his heart. And when you prepare your heart, you prepare your life for everything in the future. How do you prepare it? <clears throat> the text says, Ezra 7.10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, the word is used, the law, and statutes and ordinances. Probably a simple way to describe the law of God is the word, his word, his communicated word to us. <clears throat> so Ezra had prepared his heart through the word, the scriptures. And that's exactly how God will prepare your heart and develop your heart to be what it needs to be is through his word. Now you think, is this book just <clears throat> like any other book? Is it, is it uh, something I have on my shelf that collects dust that I may read periodically? But <clears throat> I think to understand that God's written word leads us to the living word, and the living word is Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul described it as like a schoolmaster, and that, that term schoolmaster wasn't so much uh, like the teacher of the class, but the one that helped the kids get to school. And so if you could picture it this way in your mind, that the law or God's word <clears throat> is like the one that comes along and grabs the hand of all the kids and takes them to school, <laughs> walks them to school. That's what the law does. That's what God's word does, is it takes you to introduce you to the person of Jesus Christ. And relationship is what God desires with you. It's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's not just, well, I have this memorized, or I know all the chapter content, or I know all the stories, but it is a means to an end. And the end is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, your life is fully prepared. If you notice in that verse, and the reason I say it's power-packed is, is this, that God's concerns my heart. What needs to affect my heart is the Word. And it does it in three ways. He says, to seek it, 
to do it, and to teach. And so I, I jotted this down. We study to know it. We obey to experience it. And we teach to pass it on. Let me say that again. We study to know it. We obey to experience it. And we teach to pass it on. Last Sunday we talked about studying to know it. Because you can't, you can't live out what you don't know. You can't practice what you don't know. <clears throat> so it's important that we do have this diligent pursuit. As we said, God does not reveal himself to the casual observer, but to the diligent, passionate seeker. So to prepare your life and for you to be able to grow and develop and mature and to be set for what is coming, there needs to be a diligent and a disciplined pursuit of God through the Word. So I would describe it this way. I read it. I study it. I ask questions. I look for context. I make application. I fill myself with the knowledge of what God says. What does he mean And what he says? And how can I tie relevance into my life? That's what I need to do. But we don't stop there. We don't stop with reading, studying, memorizing, learning, and being able to repeat. That's just knowledge. And knowledge doesn't really change your life. Knowledge itself doesn't really prepare you. So we move past the intellectual knowledge to personal experience. This is where the Pharisees had lost the connection. They had all of the intellectual knowledge, but they weren't practicing what they said. So the second part of this, we said we study to know it, we obey to experience it. Some of your translations may say that Ezra prepared his heart to seek and then to observe. So observe or obey what the Scripture says. I found this, that in reading through, let's say you you read through the Sermon on the Mount, or you read through the Gospel of John. Typically when someone says, I want to start reading my Bible, I say, start start in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and just read one chapter a day for 21 days. Call it the 21-day challenge. Just, just read. And, and what you're going to find is when you read God's Word, and, and you seek to know it and understand it, and you ask questions, and you look things up, God is going to encourage you. He's going to help you. He's going to direct you. He's going to bring calmness to your life. But he's also going to call you to obedience. There are going to be things that you read that he is going to want you to act on, not just to know. He wants you to act on what he's saying. And, and so many times reading the Scripture is not a comfortable thing. You, you can find places that are, yes, praise the Lord and clap the hands and sing praises unto him. But there are also times where, where God's Word will be confronting you with issues in your life, with your tongue, with your mind, with your heart, in your marriage, your work ethic, how you're treating your kids, how you respond to your enemies. And so God's Word does not just 
come to inform your mind. He, he is calling you to respond in obedience. And, and I feel like this is one of the most critical parts that we need to understand, even for our children, in teaching them. It's one thing to know truth, to know God's Word, but then to be able to respond by saying, Lord, yes, I, I'm going to obey that. I'm going to obey what you say. And I, and I believe this, that it, it shows really true Christianity when we follow the Lord. Now, you might ask, well, does obedience to God save you? The answer to that is no. Um, now, we would like it to work that way. If you go all the way back to the early church, how were people saved? By faith. They were saved by faith alone. Now, the church, through the early centuries, started to drift because we like to make lists. We all like to make lists, don't we? <laughs> and so we say, now, now, if you're a true Christian, you will be in church on Sunday. Now, how many of you, how many of you would uh, like that if you say, okay, if you miss a Sunday, you're out. Can't go to heaven. Okay, you got to be, okay, you got to give. Now, what, what happened is, you, you know, we laugh when we think about it all at once, but in time it says, okay, you've got to be in church, you've got to say your confession, you have to give in the offering, you have to do all of these things, and then maybe, just maybe, you'll have eternal life. Well, Jesus taught this, that salvation, eternal life, is a gift from God. The price was paid for it by Jesus dying on the cross. And, and eternal life, salvation, comes by faith, faith alone. So the Reformers, they, they clarified this. They said it is faith alone, not of works. You cannot work your way into heaven. Faith is a, a salvation, eternal life, is a gift from God to you because he loves you. And the only thing you can do is by faith receive it and say thank you. Now, We'd like to add to it. We'd like to add the rules. We'd like to make the lists. Now, I know that a lot of people get a little nervous about this and say, well, you've got you to gotta do some things. Is obedience not important? And I would say, yes, obedience is really the, the fruit or the evidence of real faith. If a person has real faith, they really believe here. They really believe here then the evidence of that is going to be obedience. If you really believe something, you live it out. If you don't really believe it, you're not going to live it out. So good works are important to the Christian in that they are the result of faith. When I believe, I truly believe, the result is obedience. And that's the nature of faith. Faith will always produce obedience. Obedience. The uh, people ask, is it faith or works? Is it faith or works? Well, faith produces works. But works don't produce faith. In other words, you can't just go out and fill out a, a list of do's and don'ts and have your obedient life produce faith. No, but faith does produce an obedient life. So what is the next step after you know something, after you see it, after you have, have been seeking God's word, the next step follows is obedience. And so I 
have jotted down five ways obedience moves you forward. Five ways that obedience moves you forward in your Christian life. The first one is transformation. God changes your life. When, when He teaches you something here in the Scripture, and you respond in faith, believing, and obey what He says, you grow. So when we say the word transformation, what I, what I mean is this is how you grow. This is how you grow. If, if, you, if you're the type of person that, that just listens and you, you hear it and you don't act on it, you never grow. You're never going to mature. That's how you can find a guy that's in a, in a rescue mission that has all the Bible knowledge and has not had a life that's changed. And it doesn't, it doesn't continue to change. Or someone that can go all the way through seminary training and prepare for ministry or be like one of these Pharisees whose life has never changed, though they have a great amount of knowledge. God wants to change you. You may say, I don't want to be changed. <laughs> and and uh, to be honest with you, most of us don't like change uh, of any kind because we just like things the way they are. But God wants to change you. He wants to change you from what you look like today to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And it's a process, and he does that by his word. So when you learn his word, you study his word, and you respond in obedience, this is how you grow. I liken it to the caterpillar that is, uh, weaves this cocoon, and, and then in time will struggle to break out of the cocoon. You've probably seen all of the uh, science channels when we try to help the, uh, the, the caterpillar or the, the butterfly then to break out of the cocoon. You kind of make a little slit or you try to help them out. And what happens? It dies. Because the struggle is part of its development. And without that development, it's not going to survive. And it's the same way with truth. God gives you truth. And the only way for that truth to really become your own, to change your life, is for you to exercise your faith by obeying it. And it works from the inside out. We've talked about this, that Christianity is an inside-out religion, not an outside-in. It is, is God changing me to become more like Christ. So every time I come upon a scripture and, and it challenges me, about something in my life, and I respond in obedience, I grow. When I don't respond in obedience, I'm not going to grow. So this is the way we move forward. Our life has changed in transformation. The second word that I wrote down is cooperation. You engage with God in the bigger picture. When, when I obey, I am in concert with what God is doing everywhere. I could isolate my life and say, you know, this is my life, and this is all I care about. But the truth is, God's concerns are worldwide. And, and you think every, every person here today has a life, and you have complications, and you have busyness, and you have burdens, and you have problems and difficulties. And you, you take all of our lives together. There's a lot of stuff going on. And then expand that to the scope of Boulder Valley, to the scope of this state, to the scope of the world. 
There are so many things going on. And God is at work everywhere. God is at work everywhere. Everywhere you go, every city you go to, every place in this community, God's at work. Did you know that? He's at work. God loves people. God wants to save them. God wants to bless them. And He is at work everywhere you go. And when I walk in obedience to Him, then I'm in concert with what He's doing rather than in conflict. You know, when when you don't obey God, you say, well, it's my own life. It only affects me. You think about that. (laughs) Whenever we live disobedient lives, it affects more than just us. And so rather than being in cooperation with God's greater work in this world, I'm now in conflict. And everywhere I go, I'm a problem. If I'm not obeying God's word, if there are things that I read and study and know and I don't obey and I don't do, everywhere I go, I cause a problem. It's like the orchestra. And uh, when we were about a month ago in, in Budapest, they say Budapest over there, but we went to the uh, opera hall or the concert. You know, of course, in, in Euro- Eastern Europe, they have this incredible music. And, you know, they had the, uh, ev- everyone in the orchestra was like a world-class musician. They had the, the special pianist and the conductor. Conductor comes out in his tuxedo, and, and he stands in front of this orchestra. They just scores of violins and all the stringed instruments and their percussion and, and all of these parts. And they're all, all watching the maestro. And, and you think that each person's part, except maybe the uh, first chair of violin, is not going to make sense unless you understand the whole. And I'd watch, I like watching the percussion in the back, the very back row of percussion, because these guys would have the big cymbals, and I thought, man, you've got to hit that right because it's pretty noticeable when you don't. <laughs> And you've got all of these just scores of percussion instruments. And I thought, if, if you were to clear the room and just have one guy performing and he just did his part, it would make no sense at all. It would just be like this. <laughs> Ba-boom. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And sometimes your life is like that. It doesn't make sense. What's ba-boom about? What's about? And I would rather do a solo. So what happens if the percussionist decides, I'm going to do a solo? <laughs> or take any instrument. It causes confusion. There's no beauty in it. And I think this, that when, when we are watching God and He instructs our lives, in certain ways. It may not make sense. It may not have beauty in and of its own, but working together, and we we know probably one of the most uh, memorized verses of all of the Bible, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. In other words, when, when every one of you follow on cue 
what God says in your life, there brings a collective beauty of the church to the world. And that's what God does in advancing. You work in cooperation with God, not in resistance. And I thought, you know, I can, even in the, my own family, if, if, I, if I'm fighting God and I'm resisting what God wants me to do and obey, I become a problem for my wife and my kids and my grandkids and my neighbors and my coworkers and everywhere I go, I'm a problem. But if I am walking in obedience, even though I don't understand, and it takes faith to obey what I know, I become part of the solution to problems and part of what God is doing worldwide. So he moves us forward, transformation, cooperation, and then I wrote down authentication. You may have something at your home, the back of a painting or a print piece of art, or on the back it has a certification. And if you have those things, you know, maybe a, a collector's item or piece, and it's got a little paper and it's got a seal and it's certified. It, it verifies authenticity. It, it confirms the fact that this is what you say it is, whether it's a coin or whether it's a painting or a vehicle or some valued and treasured document. You provide proof that this is real, that this is authentic. And there is no better proof of real Christianity than when we do what we say we believe. When we live what we say we believe. Now, remember I asked you earlier on, how many of you are hypocrites? (laughs) Well, the truth is, we all are. And if I, if I were to write down on a piece, piece of paper everything that I believe, and then you ask me the question, well, do you do that all the time? No. <laughs> Why not? Because I'm human. <laughs> I can start making excuses. And it, and it doesn't mean that, that Christians are perfect. But generally speaking, an obedient life shows, it demonstrates Christianity. Christianity is not just a document. It's not just a theology. You know, if, if, if someone wanted to come in off the street and find out what Valley Community Church believes, would they find it in the doctrinal statement? You, you, you can go online and say, I'm going to look at the doctrinal statement. Well, you, you could say, you, that'll tell you what we say we believe but it doesn't really tell you what we believe. Because there are many places that will have everything said properly. We we believe this, we believe this, we believe this, but what you really believe, what you truly believe, is how you live. That's what you believe. You say, we believe that God loves the world. Well, is this church loving? Do we show love to this world? And if we don't, we really don't believe that. So it authenticates. 1 John chapter 2 says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know that we are in him. And so... The evidence 
the authentication of true Christianity is going to be how we live, how we act. Third, illustration. You provide a model for others to follow. The way obedience moves forward in life is when I provide an attractive living example for others to follow. It's hard for kids and it's hard for adults to to follow abstract truth. And there are certain things that we have that are abstract, you know, numbers and and charts and, and words. But we can identify with something we see. Uh, John says it this way, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And life appeared, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life. Jesus did a lot of teaching. And you think about when, when... he, he would stand at the Sermon on the Mount and he'd, he'd speak in parables and he would, he would give truth out. But what were the two words that he said to the fisherman when he walked by the sea? Do you remember? He walked by and he said, follow me. Follow me. And, and so what he is giving them is a, is a living, breathing example. He is showing them the way. He, he is giving them a model. And so later on, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. And then to Timothy, he said, Timothy, you be an example. Be an example of the believers. You think, oh, brother. To Titus, another one of his followers, he said, Titus, set yourself a pattern. Now, whether you like it or not, moms and dads, we set a pattern, we set an example of what we really believe. Now, we're right in between Mother's Day and Father's Day. And I think, you know, when I think about being a father and talking about family, the only really good sermons I had on family were before I got married and had kids. Because uh, I, was, I was really good at uh, preaching about, about family. And then it's kind of like, you know, you get married and you kind of really don't have all the answers anymore. And then once you, you start having kids... Uh, you know, everybody's watching your kids after you finished your sermon. So I said, we just kind of take a while. Zip. I'm not saying anything more. <laughs> and then, then there comes a time when your kids are all grown and gone. You got grandkids running around, and you think, you know what? It's the grace of God. <laughs> it's the grace of God. I don't, I don't have anything to boast about. I, this little formula, you know, you do this and you do this and you do this, and bang, your kids are all going to turn out great. For me, Father's Day, and a lot of you guys probably feel the same way, it's mixed emotions. Mother's Day is probably it's a lot of, it's a mixed emotions because you feel like, you know what, I am such an imperfect example. And I know God wants me to be that example. But God never said be a perfect example. And what I can provide for my children is something that's real. (laughs) And when I fail, which is quite often, just be honest about it. Admit it. Respond to it. To me, it's not... When a a dad can say... It's kind of hard. When a dad can say to a two-year-old, 
I'm going to ask your forgiveness. That's kind of tough. <laughs> but you know, when we learn to, to apologize, make things right and correct and get back on track, that's how we show real life. There's not one man or one woman in here who's going to provide for your family the perfect example. What really shines through is how you respond when you fail. That's what really, because we all fail. When you fail, what you do, when you respond right, then you provide a real living example. To me, that's an exciting thing because all of us can do that. You say, but I'm going to be apologizing all the time. Hey, well, welcome to the human life. <laughs> you get through one day and, you know, it may be your temper. It may be that you got, you got angry about something. It may be that you made a wrong decision and the kids are watching. You know, it's been a while for us, but now that we have grandkids around, they watch everything you do. And they interpret it. And they've got comments about it. <laughs> Sometimes we'll say, how did they get that? I think, well, we might as well be transparent and honest about this. But what moves people forward in obedience is to realize that we, we can set an example. We can show other people how to do that. And I think throughout the history of the church, people, people see and learn and think in pictures. It goes from ab- abstract truth and then in pictures. You ever notice about Jesus? His, his sermons weren't shallow. They were really pretty deep. But they were simple, and he always painted a picture. Called them parables. He said he always spoke with parables. And that's because he, he could draw for them a picture of what it really looks like. My dad used to say that to me when I was having a hard time, you know, getting through to me. He said, what do I need to do to draw you a picture? Did you guys get that too? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> that's what we do. We draw pictures by the way we live. So these are five ways obedience moves you forward in your life. Transforming you, it changes your life when you obey. Two, cooperation. You're cooperating with God in this bigger picture. Authentication, you validate true Christianity Illustration, you provide a living example. Thomas Brooks said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. And then finally, blessing. Your life is blessed by God. Did you know this, that God always blesses obedience? He always has. God blesses obedience. You say, well, yeah, but I didn't get that job. <laughs> or I didn't, I didn't have good news from the doctor. So is that blessing? And I think to understand what do we mean by blessing. Typically we think of blessing as good health, financial security, happy or at least favorable circumstances. Our kids are doing well. But that's not always true. Have you, have you known people that have been completely obedient to God and still suffered difficulty? In fact, it's what the Lord said, be faithful or obedient unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. Some people in their obedience to God were burned at the stake or crucified. Now what is true about God's blessing? That when we obey, first we have peace with God. 
I don't have tension with God. When I, when I am responding by saying yes to what I read, I, when I seek it, I study it, I learn it, and I respond yes, there's peace with God. There's joy of his approval. There's joy of his presence. There is encouragement by my relationship with him. There is strength that he gives and hope that we're assured of. Because we know this. If we believe the Bible, we know that this life, this world is fading away. These bodies will decay. God is preparing a new heavens and a new earth where everything is perfect. No sickness, no sorrow, no pain, no death, no problems. And he is preparing that place for us. And so even in the face of very difficult circumstances in life, we have hope. That's why I have this, I say this often, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. It is always true for the Christian. It is always true for the Christian. You say, well, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So that's true. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we may go through some rough waters, some rough seas ahead. But I know this, that the best is yet to come because all the promises of God's word. And so what that does is it changes my perspective. When, when there's sickness, sorrow, when there's, when there's a, a death in the family, when, when there's financial hardship, it doesn't change that this is tough. But the eternal perspective gives me the blessedness of God's promises and that joy. So I ask you this morning, what is the next step for you? Your heart. For some of you, you need to begin seeking the Lord. I mean, you need to take that 21-day challenge and just read one chapter a day in John. Just read. Say, Lord, I want to seek you. And what the Lord says, he says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you search for me with all your heart. Isn't that great? Some of you need to, to get on board with getting to know God through his word. Seek him and you will find him. Some of you need to be acting in obedience on what you already know. You don't need to learn anymore. You already have enough knowledge to be scary. Okay, you need to act upon what you know. And, and for you, the next step is obeying what you already know. You know what to do. You need to begin to obey, and as you obey, it moves you forward in your Christian life. And your heart is prepared for life and for the future. Next week, we're going to talk about the final part of this, of, of teaching, which I think is, is probably different than what you might first think. But my prayer for us is that every single believer in this church be so filled with God's Word. I think that's the great neglect of the modern-day church. God's Word has become secondary. It's become something that's an, a, a casual observance. But my prayer is that you become so filled with seeking God's Word, desiring to obey God's Word, and then sharing God's Word. And there is nothing better to prepare your life, the lives of your children, the lives of your grandchildren, than to be a word-filled Christian. Because a word-filled Christian is full of the Spirit of Christ. And that's what it's about. It is about knowing Him in a personal, real 
and intimate way. Let's bow together.